Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ed Amon. Um, I hope things are great wherever you are. Uh, today, we have the honor of talking to Anam Zakaria, uh, who's the author of uh, 1971, A People's History from Bangladesh, Pakistan, and India. She's also the author of uh, two other books, uh, um, the Footprints of Partition, which is about the partition of Pakistan, and also The Great Divide, which is based on um, Kashmir. Um, however, all, all, uh, all the work that uh, Adam has done uh, at the moment in terms of books, a partition of India uh, seems to be the main subject across all uh, those books. Um, welcome, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. I can hear you. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's that that is great. So let's let's uh, get into it uh, right away. Um, it, it's how 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 did the idea of 1971 as a specific event come about for you to write about as a, a as a major oral history? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I grew up in Lahore and Punjab, uh, Pakistan, and I grew up without much understanding, without much knowledge and without much interest in 1971. It is a subject, um, it is a history that is quite inconvenient and quite uncomfortable for us to remember uh, as a nation. And as a result, what happens is that it's not really part of the larger discourse in society. Even within schools, within textbooks, it's kind of brushed away. It's 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 limited to a few paragraphs, a few lines, and, and you're kind of done with it, um, never to be revisited again. And so that's the kind of uh, understanding or lack of understanding I grew up with as well. I didn't think much about Bangladesh, about what used to be East Pakistan, about 1971 at all. What happened for me when I started to work on the partition of British India in 1947 um, as a subject was that I began to realize that there is no one narrative of partition. You know, there are these meta events um, and we think that there is a singular story, that they're almost fixed in history. And no matter where you approach them from, they will remain fixed and you will get one kind of understanding. But because my work deals with people's memories and oral histories, and I look at events not as static, uh, but rather as ongoing and shifting processes and journeys, uh, what became evident to me was that there's no one story. And depending on what side of the border you're at, you will come, uh, you know, you'll come away with very different official histories and they're impact on people's memories will be quite visible too. So for instance, uh, when I was working on the partition and I traveled to India, there in the in the larger national imagination, partition is seen as the breakup of the motherland. Um, and it's registered as a loss. And you kind of get that sense in people's memories as well, that nostalgia is very, very forthcoming. Of course, things are dynamic, things are changing in India right now as well. I did this work, you know, uh, back in 2010, 11, 12, that's when I was doing 
doing that research. But on the other hand, in Pakistan, uh, the story of partition is very much linked to the story of nation making. So there's sense there's a sense of triumph and victory, and even the bloodshed of partition gets couched as sacrifice and martyrdom. And so there were these very two different official stories. And, and that's the first uh, first time that I really started to think a little bit more about 1971 in Bangladesh. And I started to think about language that's used in Pakistan to refer to that history. Uh, for instance, we use terms like dismemberment, fall of East Pakistan, loss, separation, secession. But in Bangladesh, it's referred to as the war of liberation largely. Um, it's seen as a victory. It's nation making. So, you know, I had this, this sense that there's no one story again. Yes, in Pakistan, we kind of see this as a loss and this loss that was uh, instigated by India. And that's where the story begins and ends. India did this to us as revenge for what happened to India in 1947. If India was broken, quote unquote, then India wanted to break Pakistan. And, you know, that's kind of where our understanding of 71 gets restricted. But there's more to the story. What also started happened for me as I was conducting these oral history interviews was um, I was working for a local nonprofit by the name of Citizens Archive of Pakistan. And back in 2011, uh, marking the 40th anniversary of the uh, birth of Bangladesh, uh, they did this project on 1971. And my job was to go out and speak to people, mostly military officials, about uh, East Pakistan, um, those 24 years of history that East and West Pakistan shared, and then the birth of Bangladesh. And although many of those narratives kind of reinforced the selective, myopic, distorted histories that I was already familiar with, what also started to happen, as it often does with oral histories and personal memories, is that there was a disruption. There were anecdotes or examples or pauses um, and, you know, other kind of punctuations that that shifted something in me because something else was coming forth. For instance, people would mention that when they were posted in East Pakistan, um, people used to be West Pakistanis were incredibly discriminatory towards East Pakistanis. Uh, The East Pakistani Bengalis were seen as lazy as dark-skinned, as short, um, and I'm really quoting phrases here, they, you know, there, there was this racist um, ideology deployed, which has its roots in colonial history, of course. Um, under colonialism, there was this concept of martial races, and the Punjabis were seen as martial races, as stronger, and other races, um, other ethnicities like the Bengalis were seen as a non-martial races and, and weaker. And that kind of ideology stuck around, very much so, and was deployed again and again to marginalize and demonize a Bengali people. And so I started to come across these interruptions um, and, and that made me really feel like I need to know more about 1971. As I, uh, you know, as I did my f- kind of follow-up work, uh, Partition took me to Kashmir um, because I really don't see Partition as static, as I mentioned. I see it as ongoing and where else to see that ongoing process than Kashmir itself where the violence continues to unfold every single day. While I was there, I also began to realize that in order to understand Pakistan's policies today and regional policies today and relationships between India, Pakistan and Bangladesh, you have to understand 1971 better. Our Kashmir policy is influenced by what happened in 1971. Pakistan's nuclear program was accelerated after 1971. Our educational curriculum was revised after 1971 in an effort to rebuild the nation after this unimaginable loss for the Pakistani state. Um, And that curriculum, of course, became quite uh, anti-Hindu and anti-India. So 
you know, I, I realized that we don't talk about it. There's this selective amnesia. There's so much silencing around 1971. And when we do talk about it, we only talk about parts of it that are convenient to a national story. But this is such a pivotal moment in our history. And if I, as a Pakistani, want to understand my present better, I need to understand this history. So this book is very much a personal journey. I went to Bangladesh. I did interviews in uh, Pakistan. I did interviews in India. And I look at the larger meta-narratives, the official histories, the way in which 71 is institutionalized and the way in which it is evoked for different national projects, different sense of nationalism and patriotism. And I also look at how those official stories are juxtaposed against people's memories of 1971. How are they influenced by these official stories and how do they also offer a resistance? So it includes narratives of um, people who lived through the war, their families. It includes narratives of children and the way they see uh, the past 50 years on. It includes narratives of people on the margins. What happens to Bengali Pakistanis and what happens to the Urdu-speaking community, commonly referred to as the Biharis, who were kind of left behind um, in Bangladesh and became stateless um, until 2008. Uh, so it looks at those those kind of stories and narratives um, to really look at the implications that 1971 has had both on these states, but also on people's lived reality. Hmm. Um, th- th- thanks for that um, uh, introduction. I, I immediately um, what popped in my head uh, while listening to you is um, there's, there's a sense of identity crisis that hit right after 1971 happened, um, which I lived through as well in terms of understanding history, reading in school. I grew up in Karachi, so I was reading history there. And then there's a couple of paragraphs about it. And it it was essentially uh, dealt with as uh, as an as something that happened, which was kind of inevitable because of the Hindu element within or or quote-unquote, the relationship of Bengali culture with the Hindu culture. So it was bound to happen. And then whenever you brought it up at home to talk about it, it was kind of brushed away as some kind of dirty secret that nobody wants to talk about. And they said, no, 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 it was, they were different and it, it had to happen. And then let's talk about 65 where we won and how India is bad. So if do you think that there's like an... I mean, it, it kind of broke our identity in terms of moving forward, um, looking from a Pakistani point of view. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. And, you know, a lot of scholars have kind of commented on this as well. Um, in some ways, according to some scholars, you know, Pakistani identity became even stronger after 1971. And that sounds strange because, you you know, such a huge part of your population and your territory kind of, you know, uh, broke away from you. Uh, But I think what it did was it cemented this particular ideology of Pakistan being synonymous with Muslims and a particular type of Muslim, right? So if you go back to partition and you see the violence of partition uh, from the lens of purging, right? Purging any impure, quote-unquote, influences and and redefining boundaries as the sacred territory for Muslims. That's not what it was intended to be. Talking about how that kind of, you know, today's framework is used to understand the past. If that 
you know, this, this pristine, sacred, pure land was built for Muslims, then anybody who threatened that, right, who was seen as not Muslim enough, not Pakistani enough, the two kind of become synonymous, your religious and national identity become synonymous over the years after partition, then they become a threat. So what happened very early on after after partition is that Bengalis were otherized. They were seen as influenced by Hindu culture, as you mentioned. Uh, their language was seen as too close to Sanskrit. Right? Bengali was seen as too close to Sanskrit. Urdu was seen as closer to Arabic right? and Persian influences. And you actually had these centers being set up in the late 1940s to purge uh, Bengali of these Hindu, quote-unquote, influences. Um, you know, you had uh, Tagore banned. You had cultural repression of Bengalis. There was this idea that their women wear saris and tikas, and, you know, they, they are fond of singing and dancing, and, and that is not seen as, you know, Muslim enough from a particular very narrow prism of Islam, of course. So I think you, you, have, that, uh, you have that notion, and um, what happened when... Bengali people kind of stood up for their rights, their their linguistic rights, their economic rights, their political rights, their social rights, was that they were trampled upon, and they were trampled upon very easily by fueling this conspiracy that they were not really ever Pakistani enough, and they were so influenced by India, which is now an enemy state, right, bent upon breaking Pakistan, that they too, you know, became the enemies, and, um, and today, when you talk about 1971 in Pakistan, people will often refer to the map and say it was an absurd idea for the two uh, countries to ever be imagined as one for East thousand, and West Pakistan. A thousand miles, that's, that gets always said. Thousand miles, yeah. Thousand miles of hostile territory in the middle. Um, but that's not how partition was imagined, right? We have to understand that we are imposing today's frameworks and logic onto the past, and that can be very dangerous. Borders were imagined very differently. Even Muhammad Ali Jinnah left his home in Bombay locked, right? There was this idea that people would come and go. I always quote the story of, so, you know, partition survivor who said to me, I thought partition meant that I would come to Pakistan in the summers and, and you know, enjoy um, um, mangoes. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the winters, I would be in India enjoying oranges, something of that sort, right? And and so it was, it was supposed to be much more porous. Uh, there was supposed to be this, you know, continu- continuation of connection um, and, uh, you know, the sense of belonging to the two places. And that's not how it manifested. So when, when you look at it today and you kind of look at that map, it seems absurd, of course. And, and you know, we kind of project it as inevitable. That's a very important word that you use, inevitable history. This was bound to happen. I think when you look at anything in history as inevitable, it's quite dangerous because it prevents us from any kind of introspection and reflection. Right? 1971 did not happen overnight. In fact, we have to remember that Bengal played a significant role in the birth of Pakistan. The Muslim League, which was at the forefront of the Pakistan movement, was founded in Dhaka, right? what became East Pakistan and then Bangladesh. Um, and, and so, you know, in many ways, Pakistan wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that kind of support. So what happens between 1947 and 1971? We have to look at that ongoing repression, economic, political, cultural, social repression, um, instead of treating it is as inevitable. I think in Pakistan, it is, it is a very uncomfortable history. 
And we very quickly started to, you know, revise our curriculum. And we, we, you know, coming back to my earlier point, there was a sense that even if the territory breaks away, it's fine. Pakistan, the idea of Pakistan continues to be sacred because it was never tied to territory in the first place. It was tied to this larger idea of Islam, larger idea of the Arab world. Right. And, and so that sense gets cemented. And that's the kind of Pakistan you see today. It's so shaped by 1971 and, and how we kind of try to rebuild national spirit after that. But it has very little to do with how Pakistan was imagined. Right. In the first place, what that idea of Pakistan was supposed to represent for Bengalis and for other ethnic uh, groups as well. Yes, if you if 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 you read through the histories that have been written, um, political histories, people's histories, only a few people have uh, written about it, including you. Which I um, really, really congratulate you on on this one. Um, you seem to I you you see when you read the history, you seem to kind of drop. It is usually just around the uh, top level in terms of how the politics were going and how the political players uh, went through and made these decisions so there's 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 a lot of focus on 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 the relationship between Gandhi and Jinnah and Nehru and uh, Lord uh, Louis Mountbatten and how that develops and kind of changes into the borders and then Pakistan and India um, are created. What I was really interested in knowing that what made you focus on just the grassroots level of story? Because as you write, you start from the grassroots level and then you write about the other history as well. But it starts, the starting point is the people's stories. So what made you go that direction rather than focusing on the general history that everybody talks about, Jin, anyway, through newspapers and history books and archives. So I write, uh, Ed, when I'm angry. Um, that's kind of what fuels and prompts me to write. Um, and, you know, as I uh, came back from doing my undergraduate studies, I went to Canada and I came back and I joined the Citizens Archive. And that was my first introduction to oral histories. I slowly, gradually, it didn't happen overnight for me at all, but slowly and gradually began to realize how limited my understanding of partition of Pakistan had been. I started to realize that the history I had access to growing up was incredibly myopic and distorted and censored and jingoistic. And I also started to realize that's not only Pakistan's problem. Right. Uh, when I started to work across the border in India, I, I looked at how textbooks were uh, kind of curated, how history is produced. Right. Um, and, and how uh, certain things are made present and other things are made absent and, and how younger children are, are being exposed to these very selective histories in which patriotism is based on this idea of hating the other. And we see the very real lived repercussions of that. So I was doing this oral history program for the Citizens Archive, and I was also running one of the other programs called Exchange for Change, which connected school children across India and Pakistan. So I actually went into Indian and Pakistani schools, and I spoke to children as young as nine years old. And 
what became evident was that even though the partition generation had been through so much violence, bloodshed, and, you know, they had been uprooted in ways that are unimaginable, they still recalled and remembered a time when the other was not the other. And I don't mean to paint a rosy picture because we can tend to do that. Fault lines existed, absolutely existed. But there was also coexistence, right? But for today's children, the other becomes a figment of imagination. And it is fueled with jingoistic propaganda that children come across in their textbooks, through media, through social media, and other sources as well. And so as this kind of unlearning started to take place for me, as I was, you know, sitting with partition survivors and hearing other stories, other experiences, I I began to realize that there was an urgency with which I had to bring forth these stories because the limited myopic understanding was not limited to me. I was seeing it worsen in the younger generations. You know, my thesis, unfortunately, is that as we move further away from the partition of 1947, we are becoming more hostile and more partitioned. So I felt angry and I felt this urgency to record and document these stories. I also feel that in South Asia, and I don't think this is a problem limited to South Asia, I do think this is a problem that goes across. Uh, states try to control narrative making um, because you know it, it fuels a particular type of nationalism across the world. In South Asia in particular, official histories tend to be distorted histories. And so then where do you turn? I, I think we're very fortunate to have the first and second generation still around us as walking, talking sources of history. And that offers you a much more nuanced understanding of the past. What it also offers you is an understanding across different lines, across different social classes, across different genders, across different geographical places, across caste. Right, and so much more that official histories don't. They tend to focus on, on certain histories. They accentuate certain histories. They're limited to certain people. They're often written from a male perspective. What was the experience of women at partition, for instance? Right? So it opens a completely new way of learning and unlearning, of course. And, and I really believe that uh, that's the way forward, in a sense, if we want to come uh, to a more or to a less rather partitioned history in the subcontinent yes it it is it 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 is interesting as you as you as you write it and 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 you it is it is a very personal story as well um when the readers will um read the book and they will understand that it is uh, i mean uh time and time again in the book you present your personal feeling of being in a certain um situation um did you feel because that doesn't it is not very common when people write about um, the ideas around history, especially when we are talking about South Asia. There's there's only few people uh, who do that. So w- was that a conscious decision that you have to create your own space in there um, with your own feelings so that it is not something that you are telling people stories without understanding your own place in that story. 
Yes, I think it's a conscious choice. I've done that in all the three books that I've written because all the three books have to do with my personal journey of learning and unlearning, as I mentioned. You know, what are the official stories that I grew up with and how, as I sit down with people and hear their life stories in their own words, how do certain shifts start, start to take place in me? What, what are those markers and what are those transformations and transitions that are happening for me? So I, I do want to share that personal journey because, you know, I, I'm not an academic. None of these books are academic projects. They are very much personal passion projects in a sense. So where, what is my starting point and, and, you know, what is the kind of undoing that's happening for me as I go into the field and I listen to these stories? But in this book in particular, um, I think this book is many things you know it's about official histories it's about people's memories it's it's looking at the present it's looking at the past but i think more than everything it's looking at what does it mean to tell these stories to a pakistani 50 years on my pakistani identity cannot be erased in the room not when i go to bangladesh in particular right um and and i wanted to include that process because I don't believe in, you know, that researchers are ever truly objective in the sense that we often project uh, them to be. I do believe we enter with our, you know, with our positionality. We we represent certain social classes, uh, you know, um, politics and so forth. And, um, and, and we also have preconceived notions. And I want to be very honest about those. Had somebody else asked the exact same questions belonging to a different ethnic background, different nationality, very different responses may have emerged, right? Particular memories will get evoked when you're sitting with a Pakistani telling them the trauma perpetrated by the Pakistani state. What are those remembrances? What will become unsayable? Who will want to talk to me? Who will refuse to talk to me? And also importantly, what are the ethics of doing this work? Right. I could not get a visa to go to Bangladesh. It was incredibly hard. And I think yeah, there's the an incredible this, story in the in the book where you <laughs> talk about the embassy. It, uh, it's yes. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, and I think, you know, I write about this in the book as well. I think I was very naive when I thought about the idea of this book. And I think I was naive because somewhere those that national narrative official history had been internalized. Right. So I thought I have traveled to India and India-Pakistan borders are, you know, it's one of the most antagonistic border in the world. And if, you know, I, it can't be harder than that to get a visa. Bangladesh, you know, end of the day, oh, it's like the, the way it's projected is like there, there's a that's a brotherly nation. You know, India was the thorn in that relationship. And so I did not foresee having such issues getting there. And it was impossible almost for me to uh, get the visa. And when I did get it, I only got it for a very short period of time. I had initially thought I'll keep traveling. I'll keep going and I'll keep recording stories. I couldn't do that. And what that meant was that I had to do as many interviews as possible in a very short span of time. And that that raises a lot of ethical questions, right? Because if I'm doing trauma interviews, stories and, and narratives about people's uh, trauma, about, about violence that they endured or their family members endured, and everybody I met with had a story about 1971, which was violent in most cases, how do I do that in such a short, short span of time? You know, what are the limitations of me pushing people? Do I want to actively go out and seek people who've never shared the story before as a Pakistani? Mm. It right? becomes what would like that a, mean? It becomes an exercise of 
listening, I suppose. It is an exercise of listening, absolutely. But listening to those who want to share, right? I think that sometimes as journalists, as oral historians, we can push for the story and go too far pushing for that story. We have to always remember that for us, it's a story and we get to move on. For people, that's their life, right? So, uh, you know, coming back to your question, going in as a Pakistani researcher, I had ethical responsibilities. I uh, know that this book is limited in many ways. Um, there are so many stories that have not come forth about 1971 from ethnic minorities, from other communities, um, from other people. I consciously chose to speak with people who were either willing to speak to me because they wanted to share the story of the Pakistani. It was part of their process or they trusted the person who introduced us or they had shared this story before. I did not go out actively seeking people who had who were uncomfortable, who were reluctant, or who had never spoken about their stories before and you know, were not at that place where they were open to doing that. Because I knew that there was an added layer that comes with me being Pakistani. And that for some people, it was important to share. You know, They came forth and they said, it's our duty to share because you need to take our stories back because Pakistan silences and denies them. But for others, they left the room. And I had to respect that. So I wanted to include that as part of the book. You know, what happens when a Pakistani researcher goes in at a time where Pakistan-Bangladesh relations are quite strained? Um, this is back in 2017. Bangladesh had initiated the War Crimes Tribunal to hold those responsible for war crimes accountable. Pakistan had denounced those war crime tribunals. So tensions had escalated. And, you know, so this is a story not just about facts and about history, but about the present and what it means to, to tell, your, uh, tell, tell your memories and share your memories and stories with the Pakistani 50 years on under that larger climate. Yeah, you, it, it, it's very interesting. You speak of facts and then it came to my mind and you, you spoke about this in, in other forums as well, but I'm, I'm really interested in this idea. It happens in New Zealand as well when I'm... Um, where, where I'm based, there's a there's usually an exercise. Um, here is a colonial exercise of quantifying the uh, the trauma, the quantify the suffering, and then comparing that. And I always feel that it becomes um, the more you quantify, you, the you start to disrespect the actual trauma that people went through. So with uh, with that exercise happening in Pakistan as well, um, uh, I had this discussion while reading the book, I, and my father saw the title of the book, and then he was quite um, intrigued. I was reading, and I, I didn't say anything to him, but I, a couple of days he kept looking at me, and then he said, oh, so what's this book about? So I told him about it, and then, and then he started talking about the exact things that you had mentioned in in the in the book uh, in terms of the pakistani narratives of what happened to the urdu speaking um urdu speaking populations uh or people who had migrated from bihar uh, to bangladesh and it, he kept repeating the fact that uh the th- the thing that we did wrong was that we didn't bring the biharis back to the mainland west um so um it it's so it kind of brought it 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 really it was really actually relatable because I was just reading about it in terms of the selective remembrance of 
uh, that I've, I've I've mumbled about this question, but <laughs> my question is about the the exercise of quantifying, and then that leading to uh, the the decrease of the meaning of the actual suffering of, that people have gone through. Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. I think it's so relevant, uh, particularly to 1971, but to to other parts of the world, to other kind of violence as well. Um, you know, people say that there is a blanket silencing or an amnesia about 1971 in Pakistan. And I understand why they say that. But in my research, what I found is it's a selective silencing, as I mentioned earlier as well. Um, information is curated in particular ways. You can't completely forget history, right? And especially not such recent history as 1971. So what do you do in its absence? You put forth particular parts of that history in such a way that it, it it kind of pushes people to imagine 1971 in very restrictive and myopic manners. Right? And I'll kind of I'll talk about what I mean there. Post-1971, the war between Pakistan and Bangladesh has been a war over numbers. Bangladesh says officially that three million people were killed. Pakistan, according to the Hamoud Rahman Commission, which was the only kind of public inquiry that happened into 1971, and you know the complete report was never really uh, uh, made public, but it, it says that 26,000 people died. So these, these very vastly different figures, um, and you know, independent estimates kind of uh, you know range between these. I'm very curious about why this fascination with numbers. What does it do? When you look at the dominant literature that's produced in 1971 in Pakistan, it tends to be military memoirs. And when you open these military memoirs, numbers become a very, very important part. And you notice that numbers are being used to neutralize violence. What happens is that Pakistan remembers a selective type of violence that occurred in 1971, and it is violence that happened against West Pakistanis, who were based in East Pakistan at that time, and violence that happened against the Urdu-speaking community, commonly referred to as Biharis, um, who were also settled in East Pakistan. Now, the Urdu-speaking community was, I won't get into all of it here, it's in the book, but was traditionally kind of seen as more aligned with the Pakistani, uh, West Pakistani establishment. Uh, They were uh, favored for jobs and, you know, economically, socially and all of that. And, um, you know, the Urdu-speaking community also, uh, parts of them, you know, ended up collaborating with the with the Pakistan army at the time of 1971. And uh, there was violence against them. There was violence uh, against them prior to March 25th, 1971, which is when the army entered, uh, the Pakistani army entered. And uh, so what happens when you look at history making today in Pakistan is that it's bracketed. In Pakistan, we're comfortable with the history that happened prior to March 25th. In Bangladesh, largely the history, you know, that you will come across is history that happens after March 25th. So it's the history of what happened after the Pakistan army entered. Now, Pakistan focuses on the selective violence, not from a lens of justice, right? Because that violence did happen. 
And there are, you know, members of the Urdu-speaking community, hundreds of thousands of them, who became stateless, uh, who were given citizenship rights in 2008, but many of them continue to live in camps, have been to those camps in deplorable conditions. They continue to wait for Pakistan to repatriate them, especially those in the elder generation. The younger generation has grown up as, you know, in Bangladesh, so they have different politics. But So it's not from a lens of justice. We do that to centralize or maximize, let's say, to zoom in on that violence, to say that this was the real violence. And because this violence happened, the military had to enter. And in the process, yes, some Bengalis were killed. In all wars, collateral damage happens, and we are done with it. So if you go to, uh, for instance, the Army Museum in Lahore, there is a whole room dedicated to 1971. So again, there's not a complete amnesia. And it uses the term genocide, which is interesting because Bangladesh has been calling the international community to recognize what happened in 1971 as genocide. Pakistan denies that. But it uses the term genocide to refer to the genocide, quote unquote, of pro-Pakistanis. These are the Urdu-speaking community and the West Pakistanis. So it's it's the the language is used and the word genocide is deployed very you know effectively. So when young children go to this museum, when you know people in the elder generation, you mentioned your father, you know, but then my own family, so many people around me, when they come across these histories, they say, well, this is the real violence. So it's not only maximized. But it's also used to neutralize the violence that happened against Bengalis and other ethnic minorities. Right? This is the real violence. Quantify it, maximize it, accentuate it, and present it selectively. And in the process, what you do is you neutralize, minimize, and trivialize the violence against Bengalis and other ethnic minorities. So it becomes this number game. And, and rightly, as you put it, people's trauma people's lived experiences completely get undermined because the whole conversation gets reduced to these figures. Even, you know, just yesterday I had a book talk in Pakistan. The book has finally made it to Pakistan, you know, three years after its initial publication. Um, And most of the questions were kind of around this. Well, what numbers do you believe? And I have to pause and ask people, what, what would my answer do for you? Why are you so, I want you to think about why are you so interested in this question? Why the need to quantify violence? What does it do for us? What number would be enough for us to recognize that genocidal violence was enacted on Bengali people and other ethnic minorities? What number will suffice? Yeah, it's it's kind of I always feel like it is an exercise in trying to find the find the get out of jail free card that okay, so let's go to the numbers. And if they were lesser than the other side, we we're good. But if if so it's it's it becomes it becomes an exercise for us to just deal with maybe maybe there's a there's an aspect of dealing with our own inner guilt of um just trying to okay let's at least there's something that we can hang on to say that okay that we we were not that wrong at that time because it is hard to it is hard to for me it is is growing up and i start to get a bit aware of of of, um of the history of uh pakistan um, the partition and and Bangladesh, um, and then I had to seek very 
from various sources, very difficult way to get it. I got um, Anthony Mascarano's work on um, uh, on 1971, and that starts to kind of it, it. It is a jolt to you, and then my initial exercise was so. Oh, so what's what's the other? So what's the numbers? Let's look at the numbers, right? It, it's so the, uh, in my head, I think it, maybe it's as a human being that uh, that is the way we deal with it. But obviously, state has a actual narrative to set, so they actually kind of, for instance, dog whistle with the numbers so that we go on the ride with them. You know, I mean, if I can jump in there, you know, numbers are, of course, you know, it's important to document what happened. It's important to document the scale of what happened. Um, But the way it's instrumentalized and weaponized is not for that purpose of justice, right? Uh, Again, yes, absolutely violence happened against Urdu-speaking community and and justice is required. Uh, There are Bangladeshi scholars, you know, the people in Pakistan, the international researchers who have looked at that violence. And we must look at that so much more. That's absolutely there. But you're not doing it for that purpose. You are instrumentalizing and weaponizing numbers to undermine somebody else's pain. And that's when it becomes very dangerous. And what you're doing is you're creating false equivalencies, right? People died on both sides. What you're ignoring in that is on one hand, you have people picking up arms, right? On the other hand, you have an entire state machinery with tanks and everything else that comes with it. Now, when we look at Palestine and Israel today, you see the same trend. There are these false equivalencies that are drawn, but Palestinians are picking up arms, so you know the, suddenly the Israeli state has a right to bomb people. You see that in Kashmir, where the Indian state uses that logic to say, well, Kashmiris are terrorists, are picking up arms. You cannot draw those false equivalencies. You cannot say, well, they killed so many of our people. You have to understand that the scale the machinery that's deployed, the politics are completely, completely different. So it's not something that's just limited to Pakistan, as I mentioned earlier. It's something you see across the world, and it's used to justify violence against local populations, against indigenous populations. And I think that's where it becomes so dangerous. And also for, for the for the for the listeners, I, I'd like to um, clarify as well. The book covers um, Bangladesh. The book covers the narratives in India and the book covers the narratives in Pakistan. Um, I'm not going to talk about all three of them here because you have to buy the book to be able to read all of that. I'll focus on uh, Pakistan more because I'm from Pakistan and I'm from Pakistan. So let's uh, talk that a little bit more. I I was really, um, it, it gave me a great pause for a uh, for some time when i read about the stories of the bengali population in in karachi and um so i just wanted to uh, just uh, a touch on a touch on that those stories were heartbreaking and heartwarming as well at the same time because uh, I find it hard how uh, when you imagine someone's life and they made their choice to choose a specific land area to live, and now they ha- they are um, suffering through time 
because of what happened in 1971. Um, specifically, the Bengali population in in Karachi, there were stories about ID card problems and how they are taken and the racism. And I'm touching on that because we I remember from my personal story, we had a we had a um, you can say a street hawker, this is a cigarette stand. When I was young, I used to hide and smoke there so that my father won't see me before take, getting the naan uh, from the from the tandoor. So I would take my time and have a smoke there. Um, so he was a, a, a Bengali person. Um, and he always used to call himself uh, Pakistani. And, and we used to make fun of him because of his accent. So and and it 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 all starts to come back to me when I read your book. I was like, oh, this was I was internalizing all these stories, but their life was a maybe a a, a bit of a hellhole going through because of the choices they made. But I I, I just want to how was your feelings going through uh, those uh, you can say bastis or or those areas where, where when you met these people in 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 Karachi. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I've done uh, all my work is about violence and, and, and trauma stories, but I think this is maybe one of the hardest, you know, pieces of research that I've done, um, the book as a whole. Um, whether it was the stories I heard in Bangladesh or the stories back here, what 71 did to people and continues to do to people it's not, I don't want to use the term tragic, it's it's alarming, right? Uh, so what happens to the Bengali population after 1971 is that their loyalty is constantly under question, right? Um, it's hard for them to get something as basic as a national ID card. And without an ID card, it's not just a piece of documentation, it, it, it's what it's the basis of you getting any and any kind of services as a citizen, enrolling a child in school, getting health care and so on and so forth. So I think that when we think about violence, often we think about physical violence. <clears throat> and that, you know, of course, unfolds in so many different ways when we has unfolded in so many different ways when we think about 1971. But there's also another form of violence, right? There's a bureaucratic violence, which which lies in um, in the ways in which, yeah, the ways in which people are excluded from everyday processes and the way in which they have to prove their loyalty and their patriotism every single day. So the, the Bengalis that I met with are living on the margins, Right. Um, and and have trouble getting their basic rights as citizens. And I think that is that's one of the most alarming thing that's happened in the subcontinent is where our national identities have become so synonymous with particular type of citizen. Right. And everybody else's loyalty is up for question. And as you mentioned, you know, this book includes uh, Bangladeshi narratives, the politics there. It includes Indian narratives and the politics there. And, and I think that's important because one of the things I wanted to be careful about, Ed, as I wrote this book, was not fall into Islamophobic tropes as well. Right? Right? I think that's very important. I talked earlier about the idea of Pakistan and the idea of what's impure and pure, and that's absolutely there. But we have to have a broader lens, and I, hopefully the book does that. It's not about reinforcing Islamophobia. It's about looking at 
the way in which people on the margins are treated and 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 you see that of course with uh, you know the population or the speaking population we spoke about and you're seeing that with muslims right now in india right where the loyalty patriotism is constantly questioned where bureaucratic violence is enacted and i think you know i've been saying this more recently i think what happens is you know one thing is to enact violence on somebody and the other thing is to then deny that violence right to invisibilize that violence and i do think that's a secondary form of violence and i think that you know the bengali community that's something that happens to them they are invisible i grew up in lahore you know the much more kind of populated in karachi so you came across them more so i didn't even know that they existed for so many years of my life they're just not part of my imagination right it's as if like yes bangladesh was created and of course all bengali should have just gone there and why didn't they and is it their fault that they didn't right are they you know are they uh, who, what right do they have to be here so i think those are the everyday struggles that uh, that they deal with and what it results in is is uh, an incredible kind of economic uh, poverty right um a lot is intergenerational be- it becomes intergenerational yes. it becomes intergenerational right the the children are say and they said to me we were born in pakistan right we, this is the only home we know we've never even been to bangladesh but we're told we're not pakistani enough we can't get an id card so, yeah and also the book yeah, the book also yeah. um um and very it's very good at identifying the position of all these populations even the the, the bihari population and and the uh, also the, the bengali population here is that there's no one side of like it's not that you can just pack up your bags and leave their they uh, their image or their branding or their uh, what how they are thought of in bangladesh is Com- completely different it's not that the people will open the doors and say oh you come from pakistan come on let's just join they they are considered as um you can say collaborators so they have that's it's not an easy position to take for them to just pack up and leave and that's why we have uh, people living in pakistan we have to kind of understand and the book does it really really well to understand the nuance of the life experience of these people yeah yeah absolutely it's not easy to go it's not easy to go there are all kinds of questions that are raised um and so that that process is very difficult and reminds me of uh, of a story i documented several years ago of a hindu pakistani who was never seen as pakistani enough here because you know she was hindu and when she went to india she was never seen as uh, indian enough because she had the pakistani label so you find so many people kind of stuck in a way in a sense in the, on the wrong side of geography constantly you know um, combating these these questions and and this daily battle of of belonging and loyalty and patriotism yeah i did um um and i'm a stand up comedian as well so i did in 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 new zealand uh, i did a show with with a colleague of mine from hyderabad who who's a comedian as well um it was a it was called partition um comedians with borders so so to so to so start writing for that it was really great that i went to pakistan and i started reading this book as well uh all the, during the process of writing it so i asked my uh, parents um about more questions the things that i had asked like 20 years ago about what happened to my great granddad and what was happening i i 
pushed and asked more. So it, it, it brought up more stories um, of that land. And then, again, the point that we were talking about, it is not easy for me to just go because we had in Karachi that narrative that you, uh, if you don't like it in Karachi, why don't you go back to India? And my father's family went through that because they 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 migrated from Jabalpur to come to come to Karachi. So it is, it is, it, it kind of hit me when, when we were talking about the, obviously I'm in a privileged position. I, I, I didn't go through what these guys um, and the families are going through in, in the, in, in, in the coastal um, areas of Karachi, but I, I kind of related a little bit um, that, oh, it's impossible for, I can't go back. I'm, I'm not going to, um, Maybe it's never going to happen that I go to Jabalpur and see my, my great grandfather was um, uh, um, a local leader in the Muslim League as well. So I was like, I can't find out. I can't. I can't go. So you, it, you kind of the, the partitions all of a sudden becomes personal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, it. I mean, we can talk about this a lot. Um, it is a huge subject, but I want people to buy the book because it is it is a fantastic book. Um, we will end on this because I'm working on colonial research as well. Do you? Where does um, the British legacy fits in to 1971? Is there a place, or we it, it's it doesn't play a role. It absolutely plays a role. Mm. I think what the British did to the subcontinent continues to impact us in ways that we don't even fully understand and cannot even articulate, right? I mean, from as simple as a fact as this book is written in English, right? Um, the way it kind of uprooted us of our language and so much more. So there's, there are these impacts of, you know, lived lived impacts of colonialism that um, continue to shape our everyday reality. And I think that in Pakistan, we don't talk enough about colonial history. So uh, when I, you know, uh, when I was teaching in schools over here a few years ago, and on August 14th, which is Independence Day, when I would ask students what we'll be celebrating independence from, you know, often they would say, oh, from Hindu India. Right. So even the understanding of like, um, you know, liberation from from the British, from colonialism does not kind of factor in. We don't talk about it enough. Um, And and I think that's the case with 1971 as well. We don't uh, realize how much the colonial ideology frameworks, right, uh, impacted what happened between 1947 and 71. I mentioned earlier uh, just briefly about the martial race theory. Mm. Right. That, that kind of exists in Pakistan as well, with the, um, with w- within our own society, with the with the w- w- with the cliches around um, the Khyber uh, Pakhtunkhwa people, uh, the Pathans, Pashtun. So that kind of ex- continuously there in Pakistan as well. Absolutely, absolutely there. It was deployed against uh, Bengalis as well, and you know, in Bangladesh, um, many people say that it's liberation, but it's also decolonization, right? So what they see, uh, you know, the the time period uh, between 1947 and 71 as is a continued colonial legacy, 
So the institutions that were kind of created and and, uh, institutionalized by the British um, that otherized, that demonized, that villainized, that treated certain communities and places as weaker, as, as, you know, less important, as impoverished, all of that, they feel that the Pakistani state, right, uh, kind of, continued that legacy and replaced the British colonial structure with their own. And the subjects remained the Bengali population, right? Where they were not, you know, allowed to recognize their language as a national language. So language of the majority, Bengali language, right? Where they were not recruited in government jobs. They were given junior positions, because they were not seen as, as strong enough and, and all of those things. So uh, for many people, it is a decolonial process. Um, so absolutely, British colonization has, a, has, a, has had a huge, I don't have words for it, it has had a huge impact um, on the social fabric, on our institutions, on our educational system, on the way we otherize. Uh, and the way we continue to do that, and many of those legacies uh, continue and, and shape our lives. It's one of the big monkeys on our back. Yes. So, um, all right. So we've come to that point that we kind of start wrapping up. Um, what's what's coming up? Any any next next project? Is there a is there a fourth? Is this is going to be like a, a what's the tr- is this a, a, a trilogy? There's a quadrilogy. Is it going to be a fourth book? <laughs> um, these books, in many ways, all three of them uh, unintentionally grew from each other very organically. Partition took me to Kashmir. Kashmir took me to 71. Uh, what I'm working on next is slightly different, but it continues to deal with the subject of violence. Um, and it's looking at mob violence um, and the ways in which we become complicit in justifying violence uh, when we believe that a certain trespass happens in society and how those that trespass keeps shifting those lines keep shifting but uh, you know how does violence become justified in in the common imagination uh, when when that certain apparent trespass occurs so yeah very very poignant subject I will be very much looking forward to it um also, where where can people find you? I mean, you you write as well uh, outside of the book as well. So, um, the website or and where can they find nineteen seventy one? Because it's not available in New Zealand, so I had to buy it um, in in Pakistan. But Amazon, other places, yeah. Amazon has has the book. Uh, it's available. Mm. I know it's available in Australia. Um, it's available in other parts as well. Um, and and then I have my website, which is just anamzakria.com. Um, and I do post my articles over there, and uh, you know my talks and and all of that stuff. Yeah. Fantastic. So thank you so much for joining us. It was a great uh, great experience talking to you, and. Um, um, hopefully, we'll talk again uh, with your with your next project, and also for the readers, buy the book 1971. It is a fantastic book. Will open your eyes to a lot of things. So, um, thank you, Anam, and thank you, readers. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.